listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. It is my endeavor to connect with people who are ordinary people living their everyday lives, but they are inspiring us with their work and their life. I'm Janine Strong, by the way, and my guest today is Cynthia Lazaroff. She is a U.S.-Russian relations expert and an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Cynthia is engaged in diplomacy and mediation efforts with Russia and has founded groundbreaking U.S.-Russian exchange initiatives since the early 1980s. Hi, Cynthia. How are you? Hi, Janine. I'm doing great. Well, thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. We've just had a wonderful half-hour chat beforehand. And um, I want to let everybody know, this is, I think we're really close, if not right on, this is my hundredth, about my hundredth conversation. And I was just telling you that um, this is probably a subject that I know the least about out of all of the conversations I've had. So uh, I'm going to be educated just as much as I'm sure the listeners are too. Well, it's an honor to be here, and it's just wonderful that you've chosen this subject at this time. I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to read a couple of uh, paragraphs that were on your website, and then I'll let you get going into it. <clears throat> I was awakened to the gravity of the nuclear danger by my mentor and professor, Richard Falk, as an undergraduate at Princeton, and became deeply concerned about the risk of a nuclear war between the U.S. and USSR. I had already fallen in love with the Russian language and was so taken by Russian literature. I wanted to go and meet the enemy for myself and made my first trip to Russia in 1978 at the height of the Cold War as an exchange student at Leningrad State University. I made dear friends. They were not the enemy stereotype in the U.S. media. They were people whom I found delightful, whom I came to love. Compared to life in the U.S., they were living in relative poverty, yet had a rich spiritual life. They showed me hospitality and generosity that touched me to the core. And I assume, Cynthia, that that was kind of the the starting point of your journey here. Absolutely, absolutely. That experience as a student um, at the height of the Cold War was really life-changing for me. It was the first of many, I guess, life-changing events on this journey. And I really, really fell in love with the people. And uh, people there, my dearest, closest friends, um, I had the opportunity to meet friends of friends and met a family of artists living in a communal apartment um, with families that they really didn't want to be living with, but that's the way it was back then, about seven families in a small apartment that was once a nobleman's room. And oh my I, goodness, seven families? Something, yes, yeah, something like that. Sharing one toilet in the hallway and one sink and a tiny kitchen. And, um, and I really got to see life from the inside. And I mm. uh, dressed up in my friend's clothes so, to protect them because it was at, at a time when it, they could have really gone to jail and been harmed for having... Um, me as a friend and having me in their home. And I saw they took great risks. Um, I, and they paid a price for our friendship, which is 
really what led me a little bit further on into the journey because I really, there was such a big disconnect between the um, thousands of nuclear weapons our two countries as enemies had pointed at one another and really the love and care of, of my Russian friends. So that was something that really sort of touched me and I wanted to do something about, about really the separation that existed at, on the political level when I really understood the sort of oneness of, of us as human beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a big difference between the population in general and our political leaders and what's happening. We're all one. We're all just human beings trying to do the best we can to have a good life and to help others. And, and I found that to be so true. Absolutely. It's true everywhere, really. People really want the same thing. They want, you know, a, a, they want a, a healthy life. They want their children to have a good life. They want happiness. Um, they want to be able to live in peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you started a U.S.-USSR youth exchange program. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I found that quite fascinating. Well, when I, after I finished studying uh, in 1978 and came home, I then really wanted to get back to see my friends. Mm -hmm. It was at a time where we wouldn't, couldn't safely communicate with one another um, by phone or anything like that. Uh, so I was looking for ways to get back and continue the journey, if, if you will, and mm -hmm. found the opportunity to teach on a teacher's exchange um, and found myself in a Soviet school in Moscow and then later one in St. Petersburg. And uh, what I really discovered during that exchange was that, you know, the young people were so open hearted and so um, longing and yearning for connection mm -hmm. um, with their American counterparts. And so um, one of the things that I did in teaching, I, I really taught American culture. I was able to teach about everything from, you know, um, our government, our separation of powers, democracy, to mm -hmm. shopping, to <laughs> our culture, the Beatles, to, to, to just about everything. They wanted to know everything and mm -hmm. um, everything that I could share. And one of the things I did was I shared an Outward Bound film um, that I borrowed from the American Embassy at the time, and the kids were so excited about it and um, planted this seed in me of, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do something like this with our American counterparts, survive together? That was sort of an outward bound mm -hmm. um, way of, of taking kids into the wilderness and really going into that kind of experience. And so I said, you know, I'm going to make this happen. And it, it took five years, but that was one of the inspirations that experience with the young people whose minds were not poisoned by the um, enemy stereotyping and by, you know, the fear that so many of us who grew up during the Cold War had as adults at that point. Um, you know, so I, I, that was an inspiration to start the Youth Exchange Program. And it took some years to do it because our relations were so bad at that time. Mm -hmm. But um, I went on to do that. And, and eventually, as part of that program, I, I really worked to catalyze exchanges in art, education, film, theater, environmental service, urban service, and the wilderness. And um, we eventually brought young people from the U.S. and the Soviet Union together for the first time in the wilderness and took them on a symbolic climb of the highest peak on the European continent, which is Mount Elbrus, which is in the Caucasus Mountains of the former Soviet Union. 
Um, and it's at almost 19,000 feet. And oh, it, oh was, it was quite a journey getting up there. We made a film about it. It was broadcast on the eve of the first Reagan-Gorbachev summit. But it was a symbol of cooperation, of our capacity to survive together. And that really was um, what the message was, is that we, we, we can do this. We can support each other. We can actually climb a mountain and, and get to the summit together. And then our leaders were you know, coming to the summit, which it seemed at that time against all odds. But we saw a real change of, of heart in um, our President Reagan at the time. And we saw the rise to power of Mikhail Gorbachev, who really was you know, the, a tra probably perhaps the greatest, one of the greatest transformational leaders of all time, but certainly of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And um, then we saw the two of them come together. And um, you know, Ronald Reagan, who came to power, um, and campaigned on peace through strength and engaged in the largest, up to that point, nuclear arms buildup in history, we saw him um, go through a transformation, a, tra a change of heart, and after watching the day after, which depicted a full-scale nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union, and experience a couple of real-life nuclear false alarms where we came very close to the end of, um, of the world, and one in particular in 1983. Um, he he changed his mind and decided he wanted to dedicate himself to eliminating nuclear weapons off from the face of the earth. And then we had, you know, these historic treaties like the INF treaty that was signed mm -hmm. in 1987 that eliminated a whole class of nuclear weapons. So we saw the world change mm -hmm. and it seemed impossible that it was going to change. Everybody said the Cold War would never end growing up, even as I started my work in the 1980s that the Soviet Union would always be our enemy. Most mm -hmm. Americans, almost 80% thought we would die in a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. um, they said the Berlin Wall would never come down. And we witnessed you know, humanity coming together and against all odds and, and stepping up for life. And it was really an extraordinary time to be alive and to mm -hmm. be engaged in this work. Oh, I remember when the wall came down. Um, now, was McCarthy... It was that because Maca the McCarthy, Joe McCarthy's. Uh, that was in the fifth. That was in the fifties. Oh, that's right. That was in the fifties. Okay. Why did I think that was the eighties? Well, no. well, because because it really the trauma of the Cold War, which mm -hmm. you know went through various peaks. One of those peak and one of the darkest moments in our history as a democracy was the Joe McCarthy era, mm -hmm. um, and where so many people suffered. Um, uh, because of their beliefs mm -hmm. so, um, or and not even their beliefs. It could have been uh, a relative. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. It's crazy, crazy time. Wow. Yeah. I just watched a um, film. Uh, I believe it was filmed in 2005 that George Clooney did on, Oh, who is this? The newscaster, Edward G. Morrow, Edward Morrow and, and Joe yes. McCarthy. Yes, and, yes, yes. And that was, that was yes. good. Good film. I enjoyed that. And it was all, it was filmed in black and white too, so that it reflected the time. It, it was, it was excellent. It really does give a, a sense of, of what was going on at that time. And, you know, I can feel it as you even speak about it. It really was deeply, mm -hmm. deeply touching. Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. It's, it would be good for everyone to watch. I can't, do you remember what the name of it is? I, it's, I'm not remembering it right now, but if you, if you Google George Clooney and, he direct, I believe he directed it too. I think he directed it and he was in it. A great cast was really, it was a good film. 
Good night and good luck. Oh, good girl. There you go. (laughs) You must have done a little search. (laughs) Yes, I did. Good job. (laughs) So, okay. So um, do we want to jump to your 38 minutes or should we do more in between? It's you take us where you want to go. Well, I think that um, we can jump to basically, I would say 2017, okay. maybe, um, which, uh, and I would, ju- I would just say that when the, you know, when the Cold War came to an end, I, like so many people, breathed a sigh of relief and thought, okay, now I, we don't have to worry about right. this anymore. And I've kind of spent, the, you know, my, my youth really interested in two things. One was in mm-hmm. the environment. Um, and, and one was this concern about nuclear war. And I felt that I really needed to pay attention to nuclear war um, in my 20s, because if we blew, it, blew ourselves up, we wouldn't have an environment left to do anything about. So sure. I, I sort of longed for the day when I could go back to the environment, which, which I did. Um, and I really, I, I worked on coral reef and ocean conservation and biosphere conservation for, um, you know, about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then in early 2017, I was invited to go to a seminar in Washington, D.C. It was a seminar on the future of U.S.-Russia relations, a working group. Okay. And, Who was putting and it on? It, it's, it's a joint, it's, an, it's a working group that is um, a co, co-sponsored by Harvard and a national research university in Russia, okay. in Moscow. Okay. My partner was giving a talk about negotiation that I was um, assisting with. Mm-hmm. And we gave, that, we gave that talk in the morning. And we were invited to stay for lunch. And then after lunch, we were invited to, if, if we wanted to, to stay on for a special session that was happening on nuclear weapons and, and wep- modern weaponry. And we were actually planning to go to New York at that point, but we stayed back for the session because it sounded interesting. And that, I would say that was the first sort of wake-up call for me about the nuclear danger. Um, I heard about all kinds of new weapon systems that didn't exist during the Cold War, and I heard about all kinds of reasons today because of the risks that we have, such as um, you know, cyber hacking, cyber terrorism, a whole new class of weapons that are not bound by any rules of the road like nuclear weapons. Mm. It sort of made my head spin and it's probably making maybe your head spin just hearing me talk about it, but it really it really sort of it was very alarming and after the session I really really felt sick. I mean physically ill. I mm. felt my goodness, I had no idea that all of this is going on and that I heard how how dangerous the nuclear nuclear danger was today um, in a way that I wasn't aware of. I'd kind of gone to sleep. I'd kind of thought we'd taken care of that, that it was something we didn't need to worry about anymore well, after the Cin- cold ended. Cynthia, I mean, I think that's true for most of us. And, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, so why don't we know more about this? That's a really good question, Janine, and one which really at that moment just kind of was stunning to me. How is it possible that I spent so much of my 20s and 30s working on U.S.-Russia relations and I didn't really realize that we were, I had watched relations sort of begin to deteriorate 
um, you know, and, and go downhill, especially with what happened, the events in Crimea um, in 2014. And I was concerned and, and beginning to get somewhat alarmed, but I didn't realize how high the nuclear danger was. And I think one of the reasons is, Janine, is that our media is no longer serving the purpose that it did so beautifully and responsibly during the Cold War, which is that they constantly kept us aware. Um, they fulfilled their ethical responsibility to inform us about the clear and present nuclear danger. There was always something going on, whether it was in a magazine or on television, that kept us awake. I think it's also because back in during the Cold War, you know, we were a generation that grew up with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that grew up with a lot of anti-Soviet propaganda and fear of a nuclear war, and we grew up with duck and cover, and we so we had we had that going, but we also had the media, and um, I think that after the Cold War ended, and as the media has changed, particularly, um, we've seen such a dramatic change um, since the internet came along, and also since the changes in the Fairness Act and, and things like that, and the deregulation of media, we've seen news shift and it's become much more commercially driven. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a much more frenzied, hypnotic, millisecond news cycle. <laughs> and so, so we're, we're not getting, we're getting all the headlines that sell, that make money, that sell advertising, but we're not getting the responsible reporting on a consistent basis, which is necessary about the greatest existential threats of our time. And we're in the midst of one right now, which is the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We had so many warnings um, from experts about a pandemic like this. Mm -hmm. we, had, we had President Obama issued a warning. Bill and Melinda Gates said it could be you know, the, the most immediate um, existential threat to our way of life. And that was just a couple of years ago. We've, we had experts through the 90s telling us that with our change in our environment and our habitat and the destruction of the habitat and the, cross, um, the crossing from animals to people of viruses that we'd seen in other places, that, that a global pandemic like the one that we're in is, was all but inevitable. But we, we pretty much didn't pay, we didn't really pay attention to those warnings. In fact, in the case of the United States, we, we cut the staffing of our, of our CDC. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, that, that's one of the greatest concerns for me is that we have so many very um, dedicated people to these existential threats that we have, like climate, like the pandemic, and like nuclear weapons, and we're first not getting enough information, and secondly, we're basically not paying attention when we do hear it, because I think that we're overwhelmed, and I think that you know, it's a lot to take in. We're we're now facing multiple catastrophes all at once, right. potential catastrophes all at once, and I think that with what we can see now with climate and with the pandemic and with all of the other issues that we're facing, you know, systemic racism, you know, immigration issues, poverty, hunger, pollution, with all of that, it's almost like people say, oh, please, 
isn't there, there's too much. There's enough just with climate and all of this other stuff. I don't want to hear about nuclear war. I don't want to take mm -hmm. it in. It's too much to take in. Yep. Yep. I agree. I think, it, I mean, it gets overwhelming and you, you want to find some reason to be here and, and to, you know, and to, to, to blossom, right? Instead of feeling like, what's the point? Exactly. And then I, I, I think that, you know, the other thing is that we're, we're in a time where things are moving so fast and there's so much information mm -hmm. that we just, just in terms of our capacity, we can only take in so much at a time. And I think there's also another myth, which is that, you know, nuclear weapons and nuclear policy are a domain that is for just the experts and the leaders, that it belongs to them. And what can we, you, Janine, and me, Cynthia, um, do about this? So it, let's, leave, let's, let's focus on some things in our community that we can do some things about. Right. And to a certain extent, it's true that nuclear policy right now is in the hands of the leaders and, and in our Congress in the United States and in the hands of our president. But what we saw happen in the 1980s and when you see any social change is that we have to realize that because nuclear weapons can end civilization, you know, in a matter of 25 or 30 minutes um, and where they strike, you're, everything is vaporized um, immediately. I mean, it's just gone like that. Mm -hmm that we all, the stakes belong to all of us. So we actually have to democratize nuclear policy since nuclear weapons can affect all of us. Mm -hmm. We all have a role to play mm -hmm. in determining their future. And if we don't all come together, like we did during the Cold War, when millions of us across partisan, ethnic, religious, gender, racial, across all lines, across all ages, people from all walks of life and all backgrounds came together, not only in the United States, but around the world to say enough. We need to change um, our, our nuclear policy and we need to work towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. And that sort of, that awakening is what I think is what's necessary now is to realize that our future doesn't belong to just the president in our Congress and the leaders of the other nuclear powers. Our future depends on us and we all need to actually act to change things and we can do that. We've seen it, we've seen the impossible happen before or what people told us was impossible and we can actually do that again. Mm -hmm. We just need to keep ourselves awake. And so, Going back to 2017, mm -hmm. if we're just continuing, after that meeting, I was asked to work on a film interviewing all the top experts in, in U.S.-Russia relations, or many of them, and uh, on nuclear, nuclear weapons and nuclear policy. And that took me so much more, more deeply into this, this issue. And... Um, Really, I was awakened, so much more deeply awakened. I would say that pretty much everybody I talked to and interviewed during the course of making that documentary woke me up in some way. Mm -hmm. But I would say that really a turning point for me was when I interviewed our former Secretary of Defense, William J. Perry, mm -hmm. 
who at the age of, I think, over 90 at this point with many grandchildren, Mm -hmm. who knows more about nuclear weapons than almost anyone on the planet, is dedicating his life to preventing a nuclear catastrophe because he told me in the interview that we're at a greater risk of a nuclear catastrophe than at any time during the Cold War, today than at any time during the Cold War, and that we must wake up. So that's when I really, that's when I really began to t- come to terms with my sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. And I, that's when I lay awake at night with the question of, you were asking Janine, of why, why don't we know about this? And it was for me sort of doubly hard because at least during the Cold War, we were awake. Right. And so we had that much going for us. But to think about what an uphill battle it was, um, you know, to try to even get this out there on the radar with everything else that we're dealing with right now, it really, it really was overwhelming. And I have to say, just, you know, honestly, I, was, I, I, got, I woke up in the middle of the night every night, you know, after that interview with, with William Perry. And then I interviewed, had the honor of interviewing the former Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whom I admi- admired for so many decades. And he was really, you know, the other person in, in this more than 60 interviews that I did that I would say had the greatest impact, impact on me. And this was in, William Perry was in November of 2017. Mm-hmm. Gorbachev was in December of 2017. And, you know, he said that, you know, our relations have been going from bad to worse and nuclear, the nuclear threat is back and it's alive and it's real and, and nu- nuclear tensions are rising. And if someone loses their nerve in these tensions, mm-hmm. you know, it could be all over is essentially what he said. You know, we, we, might, we may not survive. And so I came home from in, these interviews, came home from Moscow and it, he, to here in Hawaii, where I live on the island of Kauai on a, a little organic farm, and it was at the height of the fire and fury tensions between um, our president, Trump, and Kim Jong-un mm-hmm. of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, and we in Hawaii knew that we had been marked on the map of death by North Korea. Mm. So tensions were very high in Hawaii because we, Honolulu, had been marked um, as the you know center of the Pacific fleet here in the United States. And then also... On the island of Kauai, we have the largest missile defense testing site in the world. So really, we have. I we didn't ha- know yes, that. Oh my goodness! On this tiny island, I didn't know that either when I moved here. Wow! <laughs> I found that after I moved here, so the tensions were really high. There were actually warnings by the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency about what to do if we were attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came home with those in that kind of environment here, and then. Life brought me something in January of 2018, and I'm not sure whether you want to ask me about that, Janine, or whether well, yeah, go. I, I mean, go on. this. I, I I'm just <laughs> wow. I, I'm just kind of picturing this whole milieu of of what you know. You're doing these interviews. Actually, I wrote down a, a couple of things that William Perry had said to you, and I, I I'd like to read those, and then and then go into your what your experience. What he said to you, we are today inexplicably recreating the conditions of the Cold War. We're recreating the dangers of the Cold War. Today, the danger of some sort of nuclear catastrophe is greater than it was during the Cold War. 
and most people are blissfully unaware of this danger. Because we don't understand the dangers, we make no attempt, no serious attempt, to repair the hostility between the United States and Russia. And so we are allowing ourselves to sleepwalk, to sleepwalk into another catastrophe. We must wake up. And I have to say, I would include myself into blissfully unaware. Well, it's, um, it, it's, it's great that we're having this conversation because you, you went beyond any fear you had and you had the courage to go deeper mm -hmm. and not say, no, I didn't, don't want to know about this or talk about it. Um, and that, those words of, of our former Secretary of Defense, William Perry, touched me to the core mm -hmm. in that interview and they have stayed with me and really I said to him at the end of the interview I want to help I want to do something I'm awake you know mm -hmm. you, you, you've awakened me and he really did awaken me and and I am really grateful to him for that and I would say that what's of greatest concern for someone like me that he alludes to as one of the many reasons why we're at a greater danger than we were during the Cold War, and again, there are many, many dangers, technology-wise and otherwise, um, is that at least during the Cold War, there was always a safe space for nuclear cooperation and nuclear dialogue. No matter what was going on in the relationship, we didn't stop talking to each other because we really had a much better appreciation of the stakes. Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, because of all of the things that have happened with election interference and the continuing really plummeting of relations between the U.S. and Russia, we have pretty much closed off most dialogue and cooperation. Right now, we've recently resumed talks on this the START treaty, um, the new START treaty. But for the most right. part, we've stopped the ongoing conversations. And without that safe space for those conversations, the risk of an escalation in a moment of conflict gets much higher. And the risk of an accident, of an accidental nuclear war or a miscalculation is much higher. And so we need to always keep talking to each other. Mm -hmm. That is something that we must continue to do no matter what's going on in the relationship. We have to have a space for talking about nuclear cooperation and reducing the nuclear danger. Yes. And that's, that's, a, that's a huge priority. Well, you know, if you think of it on the microcosm in the family, if people stop talking to each other and connecting, it, the family falls apart. Exactly. So if you look at it on the global scale, the global family is going to fall apart if we stop talking. I was reading that Kim Jong-un's, what is it, his sister? Yes. Um, closed the, I might be saying this wrong, but closed the facility between North Korea and South Korea or the, the line of communication. And I thought, why would you do that? That just seems dangerous to me. Yes, well, that that was uh, that just happened last week, mm -hmm. and it's the Inter-Korea Liaison Office, which was opened in 2018 as relations were in, improving mm -hmm. um, after the Olympics, and things seemed to be, you know, going in the right direction. Um, but uh, one of the one of the things that was agreed on back then was that the South that that the defectors from North Korea who were in the South, who were sending anti. Um, anti-North Korean propaganda leaflets across, across the border, uh, that they would no longer do that. 
And some of those, it is a form of psychological warfare. Some of those in the past have had bounties for the assassination of the Korean leader. Um, they agreed not to do that, and, and the defectors started to do it again. And this was wow. in response to these leaflets. And so you see this action-reaction cycle. Mm -hmm. There's an action that triggers a reaction. That liaison office was not only closed last week, but then it was ex it was blown up. It was exploded, and this was something that the South Koreans had built. It was where they had had joint talks. It's where they were all working together until COVID broke out, when they had to, you know, everyone had to leave mm -hmm. for safety reasons. So it's a re it was a really a sad time. But it's it and you can see cutting off communications at a time like this is it makes things much more dangerous mm -hmm. because we have to keep talking in a conflict. You have to keep talking. Right, right. So I don't know if you can even answer this, but uh, my big question, Cynthia, is yes. yes. why, I mean, if, if nuclear weapons can decimate the planet and I, I don't get why we're even doing this. I mean, you're not just, destroying your enemy, you're probably destroying the whole planet if you use nuclear weapons. Why are we doing this? Well, you know, it, it's the history of how and when and where we, we started to develop nuclear weapons is probably for another, another conversation. But I think that, Janine, um, what it really comes down to is that we have weapons of nuclear weapons and weapons really of all kinds because it connects to the roots of the illusion of separation because we are disconnected from really ourselves and one another. And if you look at really all the sort of issues that we're facing today, like climate, the, the climate crisis and, you know, going back to systemic racism and, um, you know, all of the other things, the poverty, hunger, you know, you can trace them all back to fear, the feeling of separation, the illusion of separation. You know, these are the root cores, uh, root root cores of violence, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and 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 so they lead us to do things that really make no sense whatsoever. And you know, in the case of nuclear weapons, they you know, they really grew into the large arsenals when we had an ideological enemy, the Soviet Union, they're no longer our ideological enemy, mm -hmm. you know, and our whole sort of weapons policy was built on that they could launch what's called in the field, a bolt from the blue, a, a surprise nuclear attack. Mm -hmm. And that we needed to have, you know, a, a really, we had to have so many nuclear weapons to sort of counteract that bolt from the blue. And that's no longer the case. You know, it's no, we no longer, we're no longer living where there's going to, you know, even back then, it was highly unlikely that there would be a surprise attack unless someone wasn't acting rationally. <laughs> so th they were unnecessary back then. And they're, we don't even have the ideological enemy that we had back then. So we really, th th these, these weapons, we don't need weapons. And, and the other thing is that we're spending, our weapons spending today, um, last year we spent 73 billion dollars on nuclear weapons wow. um, in the world. And of that, the United States spent more than half, 35 billion. And at the same time, we spent in 2019, 1.9 trillion on military, militarism, on all kinds of other weapon systems and preparing for war. And 
I think, and so in the United States, just to give you a sense, and I think people, people right now are seeing and understanding how misplaced our priorities are with the, with the pandemic, because, you know, in the United States, we have more nuclear weapons than hospitals. Just that, <laughs> just that, it's just, it just, it, it doesn't serve us. Mm -hmm. It's so clear. And these weapons cannot help us in any way with the other existential threats that we face. Nuclear weapons have no role to play in pandemics or climate change or any of the other threats that we face. Or poverty right or, yeah. or poverty or hunger or, you know, racism or, or violence against women. Mm -hmm. That all of these things come from our illusion of separation and our fear and our trauma. You know, and that's so our trauma from the Cold War was never fully healed when the Cold War ended. We, we never fully really got over that trauma. Mm. And so this kind of unhealed sort of trauma in our relationship with the former Soviet Union is, is coming back to haunt us in our relationship with Russia. It's true for them too. Again, it would be the subject for another podcast, mm -hmm. sort of the history of how the relationship deteriorated after the end of the Cold War with both sides mm -hmm. uh, taking actions that made the other side feel less safe. So that's sort of how we, how we have arrived at where we are. Part of what is, is up for us right now, I think, is, you know, Joanna Macy, who is a, a, a mentor who is now in her 90s, who's been an activist for many decades, and who is an eco-philosopher, a Buddhist teacher, and um, one of the most enlightened souls I've ever had the honor and grace of meeting in this life. And, you know, she talks about that when we created nuclear weapons, we really changed for the first time our the nature of the karma and the consequences of the karma that we can create as human beings because we have created the capacity to destroy all life and all living beings on earth in a very short time span we've also created the capacity to impact geological time the impact of the isotopes, um, the radioactive isotopes and radiation and nuclear waste and, you know, what, what comes out of using nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. you know, goes into not just the immediate generation or even seven mm -hmm. generations and not mm -hmm. just hundreds of thousands of years, but millions of years, you know, and she talks about, so we can actually go into fear over this mm -hmm. and, and be numbed and paralyzed. Or she says, we can really, you know, rise to fulfill the promise of the consciousness with which we're endowed as human beings. We can, we can be awake, mm -hmm. we can act, we can write a new story. And so that's what the work is right now. It's, we can write this new story. It's not up to the experts. Mm -hmm. It's not, we can't leave this up to them. They can't, they can't do it without us. In fact, they won't do it without us. <laughs> Probably they not. Need to hear from all of us. Mm -hmm. They need to know that we care. We need to let them know that our lives are at stake and we need to awaken them if they're not already awake mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to what's at stake here. It's what's at stake is everything and everyone we know and love and cherish in our lives, our children, our parents, you know, our beloveds, all of that. All of civilization that we've spent all these years creating, the music, the art, 
all the beautiful that you know the the butterflies the, the just the beautiful life the animals all of that could be gone mm -hmm. yeah you know if if everyone just takes a moment and close your eyes and just imagine that everything that you know and love everything that exists could be gone in a moment so you received your wake up call Tell us about what happened because that's pretty wow. <laughs> so, so Janine, it just you know, I I look back and it's so um, it's so interesting the way life the life's journey brought me to Hawaii where I hadn't lived, brought me to this place, brought me back into the work that I never thought I'd be doing again in U.S. Russia relations, and reawakened me to the nuclear danger. And then we had North Korea marking us as a target when I came home from Russia in December. And then in January, on January, on the morning of January 13th, 2018, it was a Saturday morning, we got a message on our cell phones here in Hawaii. I was one of over a million people here in the state of Hawaii who all got the message, an emergency alert on our cell phones that said, inbound ballistic missile threat to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Wow. And this is only two years ago, everybody. <laughs> this isn't like it's, you know, during the Cold War. This is just two years ago. And it was, it, 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 you know, at first, like what I now know is that I, like so many other people here in Hawaii, you know, we all wanted to know, the first question was, is this real mm -hmm. or is this a hoax? Is this a hack? Mm -hmm. And we went through a whole series of questions in, in our own home with our family. And I wouldn't have known because my cell phone was on silent and I didn't hear the alert when it went off, but we had our nephew visiting and he got it on his phone and ran in and sort of shoved it, mm -hmm. you know, and showed it to us. At first we thought it was a hack because it wasn't on my partner's phone, mm. but I went and checked my phone and it was there. And then it showed up on my partner's phone and in the nuclear alert, AT&T had less minutes to deal with it than, than the Verizon. They got the message later, which just shows a technological interesting little thing. Mm -hmm. But then we all, everybody was trying to dial 911 and we couldn't get through to find out if it was real. So it was, it was one of these moments. So I did, I realized who do I know who's going to know? Mm -hmm. Who do I know? And I immediately thought of this uh, woman who's now a county council member on Kauai, Felicia Calden, who has a radio show. And she, at the time, knew everyone and mm -hmm. still does. Mm -hmm. And I knew that she would know that, she, that everybody takes her phone call. So I went to her Facebook page. You know, there was no post. I tried to phone her. No answer. I, I tried to text her. Didn't hear from her. But eventually she called me back. And I said, Felicia, is this real? And she said, the county is telling us to take shelter. And for me, that was all I needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And that was, okay, then I need to take this seriously. I need to prepare. Oh, my goodness. How, How do you prepare? Possible? And, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. You know, to me, it's really, it's so, it's so interesting because... Um, I, we had gotten all these warnings about if there's a nuclear attack, you should stock 
you know, um, a gallon of water per day for each person in your family and 14 days for two weeks and 14 days of canned food. And, and they had a whole list of things to do to prepare. And I, when I saw that, I said, this is ridiculous. I can't prepare for a nuclear war. There's no way to prepare for a nuclear war. I don't want to really want to survive a nuclear war. That's my um, feeling. Why would you <laughs> even want to survive it, frankly? But, but in the moment, of being faced with the prospects of a nuclear missile and and going into this feeling of there's a nuclear missile headed here. Mm -hmm. I went into this mode of trying to survive, trying to think about what I could possibly do to survive and to seek shelter. You know, I know that I hadn't stocked the supplies. I faulted myself for it in the moment. I thought, oh my God, I've done nothing to prepare my family for this. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, um, you know, hadn't done all the preparations that I could have done and felt a moment of guilt during, during this alert. Mm -hmm. But I also, I also went to this, into this mode because we didn't know, we weren't told if this was one nuclear missile. We weren't mm -hmm. told if it, where it was coming from. We didn't know how many minutes we had. Oh. We didn't know. I and I knew that if it if it was if it was an accidental nuclear war, mm -hmm. which is with the so with Russia, that it would be the end. Mm -hmm. But if it was North Korea, there are questions about how strong their nuclear nuclear capability is right. and how effective their weapons are. But even the maximum they have maybe thirty nuclear weapons, okay. and so at that time maybe less. I thought, well, you know, if it's and, and what if they just strike Honolulu, mm -hmm. then you know, I mean, I, all of this was there wasn't really time, but all of it because of what I'd been awakened to. Mm -hmm. All of those scenarios were in my mind, mm -hmm. and and so I just went into this mode of, I've got to do everything I can in whatever time we have left not knowing if it was going to strike at any moment of, of going into a mode of, of, of trying to, of trying to survive. And so I grabbed a few bottles of water and a few bananas and some Lilikoi. And I, I made plans to go to a meditation cave because you really want something that's sealed. If you can get there mm -hmm. in a nuclear, in a nuclear blast. And I, there's a meditation cave. My neighbor has one. And so mm -hmm. that's where I set out to go. And, but my, it was a surreal experience. I only could think about what was just in front of me mm -hmm. and getting my family safely to shelter and then getting there and, you know, what to take, mm -hmm. what to take with me. My phone had 12% charge. <laughs> I, I grabbed my phone charger are there going to be, I think there are lights in there. Maybe there's electricity. I don't know. Mm -hmm. My computer, my passport, my purse, you know, it's like, am I going to need any of these things? Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that, that I, when it became most real for me, and I think is when it, this is when it became most real for all of us in Hawaii, um, was when I called my daughter. Mm. To, to tell her what was going on. And she had just left and was in LA. Mm -hmm. um, and I, not intentionally, but I think it was a survival mechanism because I wouldn't have been able to hold it together if I'd called her a moment sooner. Mm. I didn't try to call her until I was almost to the cave, almost to the, to the steps mm -hmm. to climb to the cave. I, 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 I tried her once I got in my car 
to drive to the cave because I knew we had a few minutes and I was afraid that walking would take too long. Okay. And I, the, so I finally, it was ringing and ringing and ringing. And finally she picked up and I said, Mackenzie, I don't know if you, I want, first I want you to know that I love you <laughs> and that we're all okay. And I don't know if you've been listening to the news, but um, we've just got a warning on our cell phones, all of us here in Hawaii, that there's a ballistic missile coming and, you know, we're headed to the cave and um, the meditation cave. And uh, I just want you to know, I love you. And I'll call you from there again, if I can, Mm -hmm. it was in that moment that, and even thinking about it now and talking about it now, is it that moment where what's most precious love and those you love. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, I, I paused after I said that and she said, mom, I love you too. And then there was silence and I stood there at the the foot of the steps and she said, mom, go, go, go. (laughs) And it wasn't just, um, you know, a personal thing. It became, it was, is this, is this not only, it was, will I ever see her again? Will I ever hear her voice again? But is this the beginning of the end, mm. for, not just for me mm-hmm. and her. And is it, is it, is it bigger than this? Is it, is it, is this going on in different parts of the world? And we don't know about it. What's going on. Is this the beginning of the end of life as we know it? Is this really a civilization ending event? Mm. Is this, is this the end of everything and everyone we know and love and cherish? Is this the beginning and the end of all life on earth? And that was, um, that was what really came to me in that moment of, um, sort of a, 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 a gut punch, a visceral awakening, and a visceral understanding of what's at stake. And even with all of my, you know, background and all that I knew about nuclear weapons and nuclear war and Hiroshima and fallout and nuclear winter, nuclear war was really unimaginable to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. until I went through those 38 minutes. And what happened was I... I, after we hung up, I, I sort of climbed the steps to the cave as quickly as I could. And when I got to the door of the cave, it opened and it was my neighbor, Colleen. And she was smiling. She had her water bottle in her hand and she said, it was a false alarm. Mm. Wow. But it took 38 minutes for them to tell us that it was a false alarm. So for 38 minutes, we all went through this kind of collective near-death experience mm-hmm. um, of what it was like, you know, feeling of what it, and that thinking that we were going to be hit by a nuclear missile. There was no warning in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no warning. Mm-hmm. This event in Hawaii has gone down as... Um, in the nuclear history of false alarms, you know, as being the first time that people ever received warning of being, you know, of an attack by a, a nuclear missile and, and going through that experience. And it really, it really set me on a course that really I'll be on until we eliminate nuclear weapons for the rest of my life mm-hmm. and until we eliminate nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. So it was my, it was my ultimate nuclear wake up call preceded by all the other ones that really set me up to receive that experience in a way that, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't have, 
I wouldn't have been in a position to receive without all the other awakenings that had come my way mm-hmm. in the year before. Wow. So I, I, I can only imagine, you know, I mean, because I haven't been there. So, so what are some of the things that you've been doing since then in the last couple of years? Um, okay. So I've been working in, in all different ways, like we did during the Cold War, looking for ways to sort of catalyze change, mm-hmm. catalyze awakening, mm-hmm. bring people together, work on connection, and reduce the nuclear risk. And so, you know, just like back then during the Cold War, using media of film, music, cultural exchange, education, and then really, you know, encouraging people to take action and giving them steps that they can do. And there are things, and that's really the, really the, um, the, the uplifting message that I want to give here <laughs> is that in, in, this, in this seemingly really devastatingly dark uh, possibility mm-hmm. of w- what would happen if there were a nuclear war, that, that actually there are things that we all can do that will lead us to building a safer and secure world, reducing the nuclear risk and put us risk and put us on the road towards eliminating nuclear weapons. One of the things I did, I wrote an article about that experience in the 38 minutes for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and I chronicle it all in more detail. It's called Dawn of a New Armageddon. But one of the things that I went through, and I wrote that over the course of many months, Mm -hmm. I started writing right away that day because I realized that I needed to share this, that it was, that I needed to turn it into a blessing and a gift to share. Right, right. To yes. awaken other people. And, and so that was that, that we can transmute this. We can transmute our nuclear karma. And so that's what, what the work is really right now. But one of the things that I really felt during the course of, of going deeper and deeper with that experience and the implications of it was that I didn't want to leave people feeling disp- in, a, in a state of despair. Right. That I wanted to let them know what they could do. So at the end of that article and also on our website, I founded a nonprofit called NuclearWakeUpCall.Earth. Okay. And on that website, under Wake Up tab, there's a section called the Nuclear Playbook. And at the end of the article, there are 10 steps that we can take that will immediately reduce the nuclear risk and set us on a course towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. And uh, those have been updated and they're on the website under the nuclear playbook. And many of the steps that are listed in the playbook are uh, connected to legislation or treaties. Mm-hmm. There's legislation out there. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a couple of them, a couple of things that we can do that I'll mention. Yes, please. Um, one, one is, and because uh, one of the greatest concerns among the expert community, and there's a, a, a book called The Button that's coming out by former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry and, um, mm-hmm. and Tom Kalina called The Button. And Now what The Button is, that's, if I recall, that's the president has complete control over pushing the button and sending ballistic missiles wherever, right? Exactly. So, so one thing that we don't realize is that in the United States, the U.S. president has sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. That seems kind of crazy, but... No one person, no matter who they are, no matter how wise they are, should have that 
awesome soul authority. Mm -hmm. And so there's no one in the chain of command between the president and the button. Mm -hmm. No one from the Congress, not the Secretary of Defense. So there is legislation out there that was introduced by, by Congressman Ted Lieu and Ed Markey to restrict presidential authority, um, sole authority. And that, that legislation needs to be passed for that to change. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that you know, everybody can be in touch with their Congress people and ask them, what do you know about nuclear weapons? What are you doing to reduce the nuclear danger? Congress people need to hear from us to know that we care about something. Right. They, they are also have their plates very full right now. Mm-hmm. So, but if we can, our job is to awaken them, to talk to everybody we know, like we did during the Cold War, and to make this, put this in front of everybody, put this in, put this in, in our churches and synagogues and mosques and, and the clergy from all faiths played a huge role during the Cold War. And we're seeing a new movement growing in the United States involving again, people from all walks of life. And one of the things that they're supporting is this restricting presidential authority. No one should have that authority. The other thing is we need to declare that we will never use nuclear weapons first. It's called no first use. No first use. Okay. No first use Mm -hmm. of nuclear weapons. There's also legislation introduced by Adam Smith in the house and Elizabeth Warren in the Senate Mm -hmm. to declare no first use. Mm -hmm is immediately lower the tensions. Mm-hmm. With a country like North Korea, that is one of the reasons they have nuclear weapons is because they don't want their regime to change. And they feel that this is the only way they can guarantee that they're un- under these circumstances, knowing you know, that they're considered our, our adversary. Mm-hmm. They, they have nuclear weapons as a way to prevent regime change. And they point to what happened in Libya. Libya gave up its nuclear program, Gaddafi did, mm-hmm. and came back out of the cold into the West and cooperated with us, was celebrated by our leaders uh, all over Europe and the United States, welcomed into cooperating with us on terrorism and other things. And then we actually, once they gave up their nuclear weapons, uh, eventually, it's, it's a complicated thing that happened, but in 2011, we went in uh, along with NATO and we, we toppled Gaddafi and ended up, you know, he was ended up brutally murdered and the country is still suffering to this day. And one of the things that people in Libya say, members of the former leadership is that we shouldn't have given up our nuclear weapons. So <laughs> it was a, it was an example that Kim points to, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. anyway, getting, getting back to no first use. If we can, once we say that China and India have declared no first use, okay. if the U S and Russia can, can declare no first use and we mm-hmm. can encourage all nuclear powers to declare no first use, mm-hmm. that's going to immediately lower the tensions which immediately lowers the risk risk of the escalation of a conflict or a miscalculation in a conflict to a point where it could go nuclear. So that's, that's another piece of legislation. The other thing that Reagan and Gorbachev did was they declared, they issued the declaration that a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. Mm-hmm. And that's something that could go a long way if the United States and Russia were to do that again. 
again, to lower the tensions. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole host of other things, restoring the nuclear dialogue. We need to make sure that the New START treaty is extended. And right now, that's at risk after many other treaties that have fallen. The INF treaty was canceled um, by the United States, which was devastating nuclear stability. The Open Skies Treaty was recently canceled. We're now talking about renewing the possibility the U.S. has put renewing nuclear testing for the first Mm -hmm. time since 1992 back on the table. That's not in the playbook, but it will be. Mm -hmm. Um, We absolutely need to make sure that we never allow nuclear testing to resume again. That would give everyone, if we start, if we start nuclear testing again, what's that to stop anyone else from testing nuclear weapons? Right. You know, there are many things that, that can be done. There are treaties out there. There's the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons that was put forth by, the, by ICANN, the International, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, that has, as I think, maybe 30-some countries away from being adopted that would ban nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. None of the nuclear powers have signed that treaty. That's an aspiration. It makes nuclear weapons immoral. It becomes international law. So it applies pressure. And then there are, you know, there are, there are many groups out there doing this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many that one can get involved in. There's a national campaign called Beyond the Brink. It's a coalition of many of these organizations. There's an organization called Beyond the Bomb. There's uh, an organization called Global Zero. I mean, there are just so many people doing so many things and people really bringing, working to bring in the interse- intersectionality of nuclear weapons with all the other issues we were talking about, mm-hmm. the same root, root, courts, root cores of violence, and really seeing that we can, if we can free up the almost $2 trillion that we're scheduled to spend over the next 30 years in modernizing our nuclear arsenal, if we can, if we can really convert that and, and, and use that money where we need it for healthcare, for education, for to feed people, to, you know, to address climate issues. And if we can really come together with other countries to focus on shared threats like climate change, like pandemics, then you know, we're we're going to actually we're going to do what Joanna Macy said. We're going to fulfill our promise of, of, of the consciousness with what and our potential with what we've We've been endowed. We're going to be awake. So, in terms of in terms of the focus, I do education. I actually take people through and educate them about the nuclear danger and what they can do mm-hmm. about all of these different opportunities of pe- ways they can get involved. Because different people are going to be called to do different things and in different places. Right. Some in their churches, some in their schools. Teachers can teach about it. But I say you can just start a conversation at your dinner table. You can car- start a conversation with your neighbor. Um, and you can just start beginning to plant seeds because, you know, this rippling of impact that can go out from, you know, one little pebble in the water, it, it really makes a difference. It might sound naive, but no act is insignificant in this work. And I, I'm focusing a, a lot of work on the relationship with Russia because of my background, because we still today, our two countries possess over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. And it's up to our two countries Mm. to reduce our arsenals if we want the other countries to come along and do the same. And it's up to our two countries to really maintain a nuclear dialogue. And it's really up to our two countries to either put the treaties back in place or make sure that 
that this New START treaty doesn't expire. It's up to our countries to actually change our relationship. We actually have to change our relationship to, to take care of the nuclear problem. So we have to realize our shared interests in reducing mm -hmm. the nuclear danger, mm -hmm. in eliminating nuclear weapons, in collaborating together on things like the pandemic and climate and other issues that we face mm -hmm. as a human species. Mm -hmm. We've done cultural exchanges with musicians, with you know, any way that we can kind of get the word out. I've taken congressional people and people in Moscow, you know, from all different backgrounds mm -hmm. at the student level and also at the expert level and at the policy level with, with lawmakers here in the United States uh, and their staffs, I would say. I take them through a simulation of getting a message on their cell phone that's Photoshopped to say Washington or Moscow or wherever they are mm -hmm. and take them through a simulation of what it's like to feel like you're about to be hit by a nuclear missile mm -hmm. and to bring that, to, to actually make the threat real, to actually bring it home and then to take them through the experience of what do you do? What does this mean to you? Who do you call? Where do you go? And like what happened here in Hawaii, everybody wants to connect with their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And then, then you begin to realize what's at stake, right? Mm -hmm. You begin mm -hmm. to realize what the stakes are. The, the other thing that I, two other areas, two projects that I'm really focusing my, my heart on right now, mm -hmm. um, one is a gathering of indigenous elders in the Bering Strait, in the Bering Strait, the border between the U.S. and Russia is less than three miles apart. It's an artificial border. Mm -hmm. It separates indigenous families that are part of the same tribe. Oh. Um, and it, it literally is out in the middle of the Bering Strait between two little islands. One belongs to Russia and one belongs to the United States. Uh -huh. So we will bring together indigenous elders and youth in a festival for peace, which is really, and culture and a celebration and really a celebration of unity, showing that, you know, these mm -hmm. are, these are indigenous peoples from both sides of the Bering Strait that were really, that are part of literally the same tribe uh, and tribes that go back so many, many, many years. And so we will, it will be a celebration and honoring our unity. It will, you know, be putting out the idea that we want to open, you know, border up in terms of for these peoples that they, they have a history of going back and forth in canoes that we want to really, really build the connections and establish the connections in the world today to reunite the peoples on both sides of the Bering Strait and cooperate on, um, you know, climate change and all kinds of other things that we can do together and do environmental projects together and really show it's really a demonstration of cooperation much like, mm -hmm. much mm -hmm. like what we had with the mountain climb, kids climbing mm -hmm. to the summit and surviving together, people coming into the Bering Strait, showing that we're really all one family, that we're neighbors, because we are very close to one another. And also just to say that this is in the context where just in the last week, we've seen an increasing, and in the, in, over time in, in recent years, we've seen an, incre an increase in the number of intercepts. We've had this history of intercepts of military planes, the U.S. of Russian military planes on the Alaskan coast and the Russians of U.S. military planes on the, their coast in the far east of Russia. Just last week, we saw Russian, uh, you know, Russian planes coming to the coast of the United States. And 
this, this, this increases tensions. And so this is an area also where there's increasing rivalry over resources in the Arctic due to the melting of, um, of, the, ice, of the ice. So, so there are many reasons why this place is symbolically a place. It has a whole history um, goes back many, many years, hundreds of years in, 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 the, in relations between the countries. So um, we, we actually, uh, we actually it's, a, it's a very appropriate place to hold this as a symbolic demonstration of, of peace and cooperation. So that's, that's that project. Then the other thing that really has, that, that's clear across the board in the field of peace and building a secure and safe future and a world without nuclear weapons is that women I can imagine are grossly underrepresented in the nuclear space and in the in the field of peace and security and have been historically if you think about it you know nuclear weapons were created by men and and largely have largely been created and the decisions about them have been made largely just by men not not entirely but largely and so women really are underrepresented in the peace in peace processes as well but the research shows that when civil society groups including women's groups are involved in negotiations and and peacemaking the negotiations are 64% less likely to fail and so you know and and it's not just because women because of our gender it's because we bring feminist kind of policy ideas to the process. We bring cooperation, we bring dialogue, we be, bring peace and diplomacy over conflict and, and, and not talking to each other. So these skills are critical to the process. And also when, when agreements are made, if women have been involved, mm -hmm. the agreements are 35% more enduring. So it's absolutely critical that we have more women. And so in my own experience re-engaging in this world in the last couple of years, I've had so many experiences with women across the spectrum of the nuclear space, women who have had no exposure to women who are, you know, diplomats and arms control people and members of our Congress or members of parliament. And it's clear that there's pretty much a universal call to bring more women into the process. So I had a whole journey just with these experiences with women mm. in, in the last couple of years that really inspired me. And, and what I heard mm. is that there was a real need for mentoring and for bringing new people into this work. And so last fall, when I was hosting a gathering of indigenous elders here on Kauai for the Bering Strait project on the solstice, about four or five different young women, none of whom had had any experience with nuclear weapons or nuclear policy before, none of whom knew each other, all came to me independently after reading my article or hearing me speak and said, would you mentor me? I would like to, I'd like to become a voice <laughs> uh -huh. on this issue. Uh -huh. And it was really a range of people and people who were what I would call unlikely suspects, who is what we most need to engage. Mm -hmm. The nuclear security community can't do it alone. It's a siloed community like so many communities are. They need us. They need us. And, and I can say as part of that community, we need the world right now to change, to write this new story. And women need to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And girls 
need to grow up learning that this is their you know, right, that we need to bring women and girls into this process and we need to claim our seats at the table because we need to democratize mm-hmm. nuclear policy all across the board. It can't, we can't leave it up to the leaders and the experts. And oh, so cool. I have a new mm-hmm. um, project that is a women, a global mentoring program for women and girls where on Zoom, where we're bringing together women from many different backgrounds in the nuclear space, artists, negotiators, diplomats, activists, uh, indigenous voices, because indigenous people and women are, indigenous women and women in general are most affected by nuclear weapons because of the impact on our reproductive systems Mm -hmm. and because Mm -hmm. of systemic structural Mm -hmm. sort of violence against women, you know, even the way it's expressed in, in our institutions. So, so this is a new mentoring program. I am, you know, welcoming and excited. I'm launching this project in the late summer, fall, and would welcome participation of people, anyone who's interested. We have a contact page on the website to be in touch with me. I'd love to have people involved. So that's, that's a project that's very near and dear to my heart. And all that I can say is that all the women that I speak to everywhere inside the field and outside the field in Russia and elsewhere are all saying yes. And even, and, and I would say that what's been wonderful is that the men in the security compu- community here and in Russia and other places are also mm-hmm. saying yes. And they really want to see us joining them. This is not about excluding men. It's about building a container to strengthen our voices wow. as women and girls um, and to claim our to claim our seat at the table, it's time. That's very exciting, Cynthia. It really <laughs> is. So where how so somebody, I'm hoping that there are many people who are interested. Where where do they go? So our website is um, nuclearwakeupcall.earth. There's a contact page on the website. It's a pretty easy to navigate website, but I would also call attention to people to um, the, uh, particularly the wake up section, which really um, gives you all kinds of ways to begin to get involved, to make a difference in your communities. There's a resource page that has many organizations engaged in working to get legislation passed to make us safer, working to get treaties reinstated, working to build a movement. And that's what our women's project is designed to do too, not just to mentor mentor, and not to just bring people into the peacemaking process, but to really catalyze a movement of women and girls working with people all over the world to change our story, to, to actually build a movement to work towards the elimination of nuclear weapons in our lifetime. And so I would say that those pages, the nuclear playbook page, there's a voices page that has many inspiring videos. There's a U.S. Russia initiatives page that shows the projects that we have done or are doing in Russia or engage with Russia. There is also on the website links to a film that I would highly, highly recommend. It's on the homepage. It's called U.S. Russia Relations Quest for Stability. It's the film that I did all the interviews Mm -hmm. for. Um, and there's a study guide on the homepage of that. There's a link, again, on our homepage to that um, website, which has a seven-part documentary on U.S.-Russia relations, including a whole section on nuclear dangers. And it's, it's I think, really important. We have to, in any conflict, to resolve a conflict, you have to work on changing the relationship. So we can do people-to-people exchanges. Mm-hmm. We can do 
you know, you don't have to be an expert to get involved in this work. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that nuclear weapons, the stakes are, are belong to everyone. And so the solution belongs to all of mm -hmm. us. So I, I really invite people to just know that we can do this. You know, we saw the Berlin Wall come down. We saw the world change. We saw apartheid end in South Africa, which no one said would happen. We saw, you know, we saw so many amazing things happen. Um, we saw peace in Ireland. We saw the end of the Cold War. So uh, we're living in different times, but we also need to hold our media accountable. Mm -hmm. yes. We need to tell them that they need to step up to the plate. Hollywood needs to step up to the plate. They made all kinds of movies that opened hearts and minds and awakened people. We all need to be awake and we all can awaken other people. Mm -hmm. Even just saying one thing. Right. No, that's very true. So I had this idea. It was sort of like a, a pen pal, except, you know, over the computer uh, of families. Obviously, most of us who speak English don't speak Russian. I assume probably a lot of Russians speak English or you could, there could be like a translate. I think there's, there's translate programs on the computer too, but having like a, a connecting the families together, checking in once a week or once every two weeks and getting to know each other. I think that's a wonderful idea. And people to people mm -hmm. has played such an important role all over the world. And, you know, my people to people experience as a student really has informed my life. And I think that, you know, I think any way that we can connect family to family, um, you know, athletes, musicians, what scientists, doctors, this is what we did during the cold war. And this is what we've seen. You look at, look at the, look at what happened, the transformation that happened during the Olympics mm -hmm. between North and South Korea. Mm-hmm. It was, it was just, it just, I'm thinking about it. My heart is so full of joy at seeing what, what a difference, what happened so quickly when people, and they all competed on the same team. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just that, those kinds of maintaining those kinds of exchanges and contacts at time of conflict can make all the difference in the world because it reminds us of who we all are and that we all are connected and that we truly are all one. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it gets us, it takes us right out of that, you know, that, that story of illusion of separation that, that, you know, it takes us out of the us versus them. Mm -hmm. We get to really see, begin to see life through the other's eyes. We get to step into their shoes. We get to, and that, that's critical in mediation to resolve a conflict. You have to really have to understand and be able to really see the other side's position from their point of view in order to actually be able to understand what their interests are and what your interests are and to realize what your shared interests are mm -hmm. and where you can come to a common agreement. And so changing the relationship is going to be critical as we move forward to eliminate nuclear weapons from all nuclear armed countries and then also to prevent them from being acquired by others. It, it, it's about, and, if that's, and that's what really this pandemic has shown mm -hmm. that one little virus in one little place 
has brought all of humanity together and shows that there's no, there's no separation when it comes to an existential threat. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's what, that's what it, an existential threat is, is exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. It impacts all of us and we can either come all together. It's like in mountain climbing. We can all be roped together. We can all climb together to the summit. They used to say during the cold war or mm -hmm. fall together into the abyss. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really, it's, it, it's, it's that, it's that, um, it, that's what the stakes are. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's what, that's what the world, that's what the teaching of this pandemic is, is that we, if we're going to actually succeed, we all have to do this together. We all have to be in this together. We can't withhold, um, help and medical supplies. We can't uphold sanctions at the expense of human life. You know, mm -hmm. even if, with countries that we're in conflict with, we have to really be all in this together in our own communities, in our own country, and all over the world. And that's the same with climate change. It's the same with nuclear weapons. It's that moment for us as, our, as a human species. Mm -hmm. It's that it, we've arrived. We, we've been preparing all our lives for this moment, really. Mm. You know, we're, we're here now. We're in it. And it's our choice. And we're still here. That was the revelation during the nuclear alert. I was still here. Mm -hmm. I was still here. Everything around me, everything. I was like, I felt like a child. Everything, the sky was more blue. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the butterflies were more beautiful. It, it sat, but it really, I could, because I really had a renewed appreciation for the life around me that, you know, every day it, it's easy to sometimes forget the beauty of, and, and, of, and how precious what we have is yes. when we get caught up in, you know, what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and so here we are, and it's a moment for all of us and we can do this. We actually can do this and we have to do it. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we really, we really have to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what's up. It's a choice. We can make that choice. We can, we can awaken, we can stay awake and we can act and we can write a new story. Well, Cynthia, I, you know, you're excellent ambassador for this because I think you, you know, you, you lay out the case very well for the fact that we all need to do something and not be complacent. Everybody's busy, but you know, we all can find a little time to do something to help out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every, no act is insignificant in everything we do you know, makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Every choices we make in our everyday lives and choices we make with this nuclear issue, people we talk to people, if we're a teacher who we teach, if we're a clergy person, what we share with, you know, our, our church or our synagogue, mm -hmm. you know, if we're a doctor, we can collaborate. If we're a scientist, we can collaborate. If we're working on climate change, imagine what we can do together. You know, people are talking about, we can plant a trillion trees that would make a difference. We can all come together and do that. We can stop spending $1.9 trillion a year on, on, on preparing for war and Jeez. convert that and transmute that karma. And, and it's an alchemy mm -hmm. change that we can, we can engage in an alchemical process of transformation mm -hmm. and change our story. Because if we don't do that, the, the, risk of the really the unimaginable in the imponderable um, end of life as we know it is what's up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, everyone, please go to Cynthia Lazaroff's website, nuclearwakeupcall.earth, right? Did I get that right? Yes, you got it. And got it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And there'll be a link on the on the podcast webpage, of course, as always. And, um, you know, it, it sounds to me like, I, and I have been to the website, but I'm going to go back and really go through it with more care because um, you have so much information and, you know, you actually have things that, that can be done. And I'm, I'm very excited about this, this women's group that you're starting. I think that, um, is that the, um, women changing nuclear policy? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And it's, and it's actually, it's, um, it's, it really, the aspiration is that it, it seeds a whole global movement Mm -hmm. for women to really, you know, come into the peacemaking and eliminating nuclear weapons and changing the story. Wow, that's great. Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been wonderful. Janine, it's, it's really been so wonderful to have this conversation with you and to, you know, for you to, to ask all these incredibly deep questions and, you know, to, have, to be doing what you're doing. I'm really grateful. This is, it's an honor and it's, uh, it, it's just my, my deep bows of gratitude to you and to everyone in your audience who's listening. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's an honor to be speaking with you. I, I, I just, I really honor the work you're doing. It's a blessing for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you take care and, you, um, you know, let's, let's talk about perhaps another conversation that goes deeper into the, into the history. Because um, I, for one, would really kind of like to know more about the timeline of all of this and and great I I would love it how we've gotten to where we are (laughs) I I, I would love it and and Janine the other thing is that I and I'm not sure one thing that I'm doing is you could actually I don't know if this would work for you with with your format but I'm going to be recording all of the women's mentoring sessions on zoom Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for ways to get that out because it's going to be such a teaching. So if there's, I'm just planting yep. that seed. No, we'll, I, we'll, we will figure something out. Absolutely. Okay. 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 Great. Great. Wonderful. Okay. okay. Thank you. Okay. Blessings Aloha. to you, my dear. Aloha. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you, Cynthia Lazaroff, for sharing this extremely important Remember, the podcast website is realjanine.com and Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. And I would very much encourage everyone to take some kind of action, please. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And if you prefer using YouTube, I have video slideshows of my conversations. Just search on Keeping It Real with Janine. Do you know someone who would enjoy this very informative conversation with Cynthia Lazaroff? I'm sure you do. Please help us all out, help the planet out, and share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care, and as always, be well. Be well.